What is up, freaks? This is Jigsaw from... Oh, what the fuck was that? It's all. You want to play a game? That's all I got. It's actually Marty Ben. Miami. Maybe we'll switch up the ad reads here. Bitcoin 2022 is in Miami April 6th to the 9th. Like you just heard, Matt and I will be doing a live show on the 7th in the open source tent or on the open source stage. Join us. We're going to be physically and verbally assaulting Vake. Um, it's going to be fun. It's just, we're not even going to talk Bitcoin. We're just going to mess with Bake. That's on the 7th. The 6th is Industry Day. We're going to get a whale pass and, and bump elbows with everybody in the industry. You can do that there. 7th and 8th are regular conference days. Bunch of people going to be talking, giving presentations, doing panels, making announcements. Big announcement week. Going to be live and in person for big announcements. Miami is going to be the place to be. And day four is a music festival and a comedy fest. Want to get cake thrown at you? Steve Aoki will be there. You just stay close to the the front of the stage and it'll throw a cake in your face. I don't know why you do that, but some people get off on it. Use the code TFTC to get ten percent off after visiting b.tc/conference. Get them while the getting's hot. Thirty-five thousand people are going to be there. A lot of people. B.tc slash conference. Use the code TFTC. 10% off. This group is also brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Very well represented at the Empower Conference in Houston. Parker Lois, hardest working man in Bitcoin, was wheeling, dealing, telling people how to custody Bitcoin. Unchained helps you do that. If you're a business, an individual, a family office, you want to custody your Bitcoin, Unchained Capital. Excuse me, I burped. Has a two or three multi-sig setup. They call it their vault. You hold two keys. They hold one. It's a collaborative custody. You always have full control over your Bitcoin if you have your two keys. If you ever need Unchained to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum, they are there for you. They are here to help you get off zero and get holding your own keys. If you're a, a rich person out there, it's like, dang, I really like Bitcoin. I really want to realize the full benefits that the protocol provides me, but I'm scared. I'm going to hold all my Bitcoin on an exchange. Shame on you. That's a single point of failure. Hit up Unchained. Tell them TFTC sent you and you'll get $50 off their white glove concierge service that's going to take you from zero to having a multi-sig vault set up with a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats in it. They're going to send you hardware wallets. They're going to have video conference calls with you. They're going to get you comfortable. It's not as scary as it seems. It's not as hard as it seems. If I can hold my own keys, you can hold your own keys. Unchain wants you holding your own keys. Go to unchain.com. Figure out how to do so. It's important, freaks. This, re- this rip, this week's rip, was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. A really good time hanging out with the brain steam in Houston this week. Edward Evenson. Dude likes the party. He's a bad influence. He's a bad influence. He's a bad man. You want bad man working on the products that you're... I'm not saying bad like 
evil and nefarious. I'm saying bad, like, damn, that dude's badass. I want these bad men working on your Bitcoin mining firmware. Organizing your mining pools, running your mining pools. Edward Evenson's a bad man. Works at Brains. Brains is his team behind Slush Pool. They're also a team behind Brains OS Plus firmware. If you have an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not running it, you're leaving sats on the table. Don't leave sats on the table. It's for losers. Are you a loser? I didn't think so. Go to brains.com. And see if your ASIC is compatible with it. And if it is, download it. You don't want to be a loser. Do you? No, I didn't think so. Go to brains.com. Download the firmware. Check out everything else they have. Last but not least, is brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer exchange, a peer-to-peer lending platform, no KYC, no AML. They're staying true to the cypherpunk ethos of Bitcoin. They have their lending platform, lend.hodlhodl.com, allows you to put Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig quorum. You hold one key, your counterparty holds one key, hodlhodl holds the third key. You have no control of your Bitcoin, but you do have visibility into that escrow account, so you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated. You have certainty that if you pay that loan back, you are going to get your sats back at the end of the day. As long as how to hot or your counterparty signs the second of the necessary two or three signatures. Uh, you put your Bitcoin up as collateral, you get stable coin liquidity. You can go spend that as long as you're paying back the loan plus the interest. You're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Lend.hodlhodl.com. No KYC, no AML. Hodlhodl is doing incredible things right now. They've been doing incredible things. They continue to do incredible things. This lending platform, again, it's it's a good way to get some liquidity without having to give up a bunch of information. It's a great way to get some yield on your stable coins. You're a stable coin guy, girl. You enter the other side of that marketplace. You lend out your stable coins. You get what you lent out plus interest. If they don't pay it back, you get the sats. It's better than the, uh, the stable coins in my mind. Lend.hodlhodl.com. Enjoy, freaks. Sticky. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Post. Yeah, uh, I believe it's a, a suspension as opposed to completely kicked off i mean a satire account to even be suspended is the most like i was morgan messaged me last night she's like when is zion ready morgan runs social and we had lunch with her a few weeks ago and she's like when is it ready we like morgan is based as fuck i don't know her in person but uh her i just her twitter account she's young too she's she's like 23 based as fuck yeah based as fuck she's very cool yeah, the, we wanted to steal her actually. <laughs> She'd be perfect. 
Uh, but it, it, no, because is it one of those suspensions where they have to rescind their tweet and then they'll be allowed back on? Yes. And I read the founder of Babylon B, uh, Seth Dillon. He put out an Instagram post Great this morning. Perspective. And, and he's saying we're not going to, you know. Bend the knee. Yeah, we're not going to bend the knee and comply with this action of self-censorship and deleting the tweet so they can get back on. So it sounds like they'll hold out for as long as whatever amount of time. I don't, I don't know what'll happen. Oh, what a crazy time we live in. Yeah. When, by the way, when the Babylon bees uh, posts and stories come true, that's when we know we're living in a very creative time yeah. to say the least. Well, that's what I was just, I mean, the Babylon bee, they got suspended for basically writing an article, which was very similar to the video you just posted. On YouTube, yeah. a woman of the year. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, and for context, if people haven't noticed, Rachel Levine, the transgender, I think, assistant secretary of health appointed by Biden, uh, she won one of the women of the year spots as named by USA Today and born biological male. And then Babylon B says basically she's a man, which, Twitter then says, that's hate speech. You're suspended. Yeah. But it's true. You know, objective truth is a hell of a thing. (laughs) It's just the assault on it. I mean, from my point of view, it's very deliberate Marxism packaged in 2022 colors. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a theme that reemerges throughout history. You have, you have this happen in ancient Rome. You have, had to happen in the Weimar Republic. Now it's happening in modern day Western culture. And it's, it's quite frankly scary living in it and, and observing it as it unfolds. And it's, it's like, if you are a student of history, it's like, this has happened before. This has happened before. It's happening again. And, and, and the, it that's happened before, are you specifically talking about like, Gender confusion and gender, gender confusion, debate. money printing, yeah. polarization and politics. It's all coalescing again in one beautiful shitstorm. Was it wasn't that like kind of towards the end of the Roman Empire was when everyone was just like confused about who they were. They were just obsessed with gender. They were just, just like yeah. like, oh, it's like it's yeah. Hypersexualized, degenerate culture. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, it's from my observation, it seems like that's where we're at today. Yeah, it's my my a friend of ours um, is is the foremost transgender surgeon in the world. Like he's one of the he lives in Austin. He he's um, the best doc, one of the best doc. He invented these processes to make a penis, basically. And I talked to him on Saturday about this like swimmer, and he is like one of the biggest fighters for transgender rights. And he's like, this is the worst thing that's happening to the transgender community because everyone's like, fuck that person, yeah. and it's like pulling them back. It's not pushing them forward. It's like literally pulling them back because everyone looks at this and it's like, this is the most ill odd. The guy's got a penis still. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. You had the uh, report come out this morning or yesterday, I believe, of the, the other girls in the lock, locker room saying they're like visibly uncomfortable yeah. because she'll take her bathing suit off and there'll be some dangling uh, gizzard parts <sighs> there. Yeah. The, the type of women I've always dated in the past never had penises. Uh, <laughs> call me old fashioned, but, but man, hey. I, I'm all about like everybody be who you are. 
what do I care? Why should anybody else have a say over who you are and how you express yourself? But like any aspect of freedom, when it starts to infringe on other people's rights, that's when we should take a look at this and say, all right, something's crossing the line. You can be who you are, but not at the expense of other people and not at the expense of pissing on objective truth. Yeah. Don't force me. I, I completely agree. You can do whatever you want. Just don't force me to to say something that's objectively false, yeah. which is yeah. where we're at. It's again, it's scary. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I, I look at my son and I just imagine like, you know, he's 10 years old and maybe he's playing peewee football, something like that. And if there was some 40 year old guy who says, you know what? I identify as a kid. I'm going to play football. And he's out there kicking the crap out of these 10 year olds as a father. I, I wouldn't stand for that. And I just make that analogy because I don't have a daughter yet. If I did have a daughter, I'd imagine it'd be just as frustrating and furious seeing your daughter compete against someone who's a biological male. And if your daughter's competing in women's sports, the expectation is that you have straight up through and through women that they're competing against. Otherwise it's just, uh, well, stupid. Yeah. And, and there's, there's ways to do it right. Right. Like testosterone is one of the worst metrics to use to say that this person is now a biological female, like go off of, this is the conversation I was having with the doctor is like, go off muscle mass and go off bone density and just go off just sheer like size. Like what are, makes great swimmers? I'm a swimmer, big feet, big hands, large shoulders that can pull the water through. This is legitimately a bigger human. There's, women aren't that big usually. No. And it's just like, it's just really scary. I think it's a scary time to think about like, even this conversation could be potentially canceled because we're just speaking very logically about the truth. I'm one strike away from getting kicked off YouTube. So. Let's not you, get you, you kicked you off. two strikes? Yes. Oh, wow. I, I think actually one of them may have been like uh, the three month grace period ended literally days ago. So maybe I get two more. So I'm curious when you're rolling forward with two strikes, what's... What do you feel? How nervous are you, if if at all, each time you upload? Uh, well, honestly, frankly, to date, YouTube hasn't really been a focus of our distribution uh, strategy, which probably has been a mistake. We were actually leaning into it now more, and now as we're leaning into it, I'm like, ah, oh, crap! Like, I don't want to get kicked off. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm recording an episode later today at 3 p.m. with a gentleman named Ed Dowd, who's ex-BlackRock, Black is a really good uh, data analysis, and he's jumping into the data coming out of insurance companies about excess deaths and is drawing conclusions that there's a potential possibility that vast, or mass vaccination uh, campaign, the mass vaccination campaign has contributed to excess deaths, and that deaths, and that's a conversation I will not be posting on YouTube. Yeah. That's what's got me in my first two strikes is questioning the, uh, the medical cognoscenti and their their view of of what's going on with the COVID stuff. It's very. Did you like my shirt today? I did. did Unlearn. No, 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 no. This oh, this one. one. Oh, disobey. Is that Fauci? <laughs> <laughs> it is. I wonder energetically what that does to you. Like I, I've got one of my shirts made up that has Fauci's face. I just wonder energetically, like wearing Fauci's face all day. Does that influence the body's energy? No, I just disobey. It's more of a disobey. Yeah. 
Yeah, just like disobey. It's a counteract. You need the disobey. You need the disobey. Yeah, I def- yeah. definitely wouldn't wear a shirt <sighs> with this guy. On. It is scary though. Like, so, yeah, so my, my last strike was I interviewed a doctor from Wyoming who got fired because he was prescribing ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and it was working, had great success, didn't lose one patient, had crazy fast recovery times in the patients he did offer this treatment to. And it wasn't even the fact that he was treating with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. It was, and they, you two put it in the email, we talked about the VAERS database at some point in the middle of the conversation and just said, hey, we have this database and there's a lot of people reporting that there are uh, myocarditis cases rising in very, uh, not too long after uh, these patients have gotten the vaccine. And it was literally the extent, and they called the vaccine poison, didn't object or outright say it was killing people, but just alluding that it may be harming people got us our second strike. Uh, Marty, uh, Justin, is telepathically wanting me to ask a question through me <laughs> to you, if I may. Channel it, channel yeah. it, JP, channel it. What, in a nutshell, why do you think the censorship is so strong? Obviously, so um, it, it orbits certain subjects like the vaccine. It, yeah, I'm curious why you think that censorship is there. If we right. pretend there's a reason other than protecting people. I think it goes back to what you mentioned earlier. I do think there's a Marxist color revolutionary ploy that's under underway throughout the Western world, and they cannot have people going against the narrative, particularly as something as big as COVID and the vaccination campaign that, that came in its wake. Like If they lose control of that, uh, it, it makes it very hard to, to push forward with. Their objectives, which is control, it's not protection or health or anything it's it's literal control over an individual's body and with the monetary system like their ability to to interact in the economy yeah i've been pretty pretty much convinced i've convinced myself uh, of this yeah it 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 would be hard for me to believe that it's something other than control yeah i think i think it also comes back to where we're moving in terms of eras, right? Like this was a chapter of the book that we like, one of the sections is like, who are you most fearful of now? Right. And central, like the central, the centralized century, we're dealing with the repercussions of the centralized century, right? Like the FDA was designed for it to basically monitor a few drug companies and everything that you said from this one television source was the truth. That organization was started in the 1930s because of FDR. And now we're still almost a hundred years later, still using this centralized system, but information is, is highly available now. And we're realizing that humans are not all the same and the same, the same, like, what is it? Carpet bombing strategy of health just doesn't work for the world. And that's what like that centralized control is fighting the decentralized century, which we're moving into now. Like the era we're living in is only 10 years old. But that is a 150-year-old system that we're fighting against. That's the bigger. Yeah, I love that the amount of data that's available now compared to decades past is massive, but it's, it's the filtering mechanisms that gets the signal to the rest of the population is really what we need to start honing in on. Because 
I mean, the F- it's widely known, like the FDA has been a detriment to people's health. Think of the food pyramid. Think of uh, just how many times Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies have been uh, fined. They're responsible for some of the largest fines in human history against corporations. Criminal fines. Yes, for harming people. Like the data's out there. Like these things are objectively uh, nefarious, uh, objectively bad in a just looking at it and you can even stretch and say they're nefarious and evil which sometimes i would i would i would stretch that far and maybe they're not evil but they live in an incentive system that uh forces them to be evil because they care about profit and not health at the end of the day um and driving us further into panopticon but i mean you even have instances in last week alone like the world health organization and the fda have sort of like let it slip like yeah we were we were wrong in in these regards and then it just gets memory hold right away it's like let's just gloss over this and the the media apparatus has an incredible ability to just make people not dig further into those things which is why i like this podcast i i really don't care if i get kicked off youtube Again, it hasn't been a focus up to this point. Um, the monetization would be cool, but uh, there's other people will find us other ways. Maybe Zion. Yeah. And so for you, JP, like, again, like I said before we hit record, what I really like about Awakening with JP is that you walk the fine line of getting kicked off YouTube because your content is so overtly satirical that it is almost impossible to to kick you off YouTube, I would think. Am I, is that an assumption? Well, uh, up until this point, I'm, I'm still on YouTube. I'm a little bit surprised. So, but, but yeah, when I reverse engineer, like, all right, cool. How am I still on YouTube? What are the key factors? I do think speaking the language of satire is a part of it. it if you looked at one of the scripts from a typical video of mine, most likely, you you know, you take out the body language, tonality, you just look at the words and you'd be like, oh, this guy's towing the line of the narrative. Like, cool. He's on board with everything. So I don't think the AI picks up uh. satire yet. Um, and, and then another factor, I'm very aware of what the hot buttons are that'll get someone deplatformed. Obviously, speaking anything about vaccines that's not super supportive of their results. Uh, Same thing about COVID as well as climate change. And there's a couple other hot buttons where I know that can put my account at great risk. And I like being on YouTube. It's a way for me to reach a lot of people. And that matters to me. And then uh, thirdly, uh, forgot the third point I was going to make. Oh, yeah. Uh, knowing I, I want to say what I have to say, so I have to get more creative in how I say it. So instead of saying, hey, there, there's some really harmful negative effects that some people get from the shot. Instead of saying it literally like that. I have to create analogies and metaphors that I know like will will trigger an association in a person's mind where they'll know what I'm talking about, even though I'm not directly talking about it. So the censorship, as much as I think it's a detriment to humanity, I am grateful for it in the sense that it's forced me to be 
a more creative creator. And did your YouTube videos start out this way where your videos, again, are, are very acutely calling out this, this censorship? Like, how, how did your YouTube page start to start, like, your comedian just start purely for your comedy or did it grow into this social commentary? Yeah, it's definitely grown and evolved to what it is now. It started out, the first video I uploaded, October 5th, 2014, is called How to Be Ultra Spiritual. So I was just calling out how a lot of us in the spiritual community, including me, do very egotistical things but don't really recognize it. And we hide our ego behind these noble looking hiding spots. Kind of like, uh, how long do you meditate? Oh, 20 minutes. Well, I do 25. So I just want <laughs> you to know I'm a little more conscious than you. And, and that's what my video started out being. And it was largely a commentary on spirituality, self-growth, nutrition, health. And then two years ago when our freedom started getting taken away, I woke up and realized freedom is my number one value. I didn't know it was because this, this fish had been swimming in water its whole life, Mm -hmm. but take some of the water away. You start to realize what you've always had, which is your lifeblood of freedom. So that's when I started what would probably be classified as political commentary videos I'd never been interested in politics before, but all of a sudden freedom became a political issue. And in our country, I I was confused. I'm like, well, this is America. I I think the left and the right is supposed to be for freedom, might have some disagreements about how to uphold it and different policies. But when freedom became a political issue where one side was for it and one side was against it, it it just became something I, I had to support yeah um thank you for supporting again your commentary is cuts deep i think is the way i would describe it like you were describing you have to find analogies like your your life jacket analogy with with uh brilliant very very good it was justin's idea thank you (laughs) but again it's weird like you even in america where freedom should be reigning free and be pervasive again the the signal doesn't seem to be getting to much of the public where for some reason or another, there's a lot of our fellow American citizens who are asking for the Panopticon or are basically attacking our fellow citizens for, for wanting bodily autonomy or the ability to, to, to work in the economy. It's the word freedom is being connotated as a like, a right-leaning idea. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and in Canada, freedom, it's all right. It's an all right term. Yeah. And it's, uh, it was interesting. It was it's a bit of a, like, we talked about this a lot about the title. Like, are we going to actually call this book Unapologetic Freedom? And the answer was, fuck, yes, we are. But it toes the line of like, oh, are we now sitting in this section where like, I was, I've, I was a liberal my entire, I still, I like to think that I believe in a lot of liberal ideals. That was the party for freedom. That was a party for yeah. people to have. And and what happened? I'm like, I'm still trying to put it all together myself. It's like, where did we, where did this stray? What were the mechanisms that created that change? And, and what do we do about it? Because I think as a human, as a human, we are innately supposed to be a free thinking being and think for ourselves and, and think critically for what we believe and not just like give up and say, okay, the government knows what's best for me in my life. I don't know. Yeah, well, 
I mean, this is the problem. This, this slow drip towards authoritarianism has started started decades ago. Right? I mean, that's why I think I'll, I'll speak for myself. I'm in the Bitcoin because I I recognize like the polarity that exists. What I have, I don't want to say I recognize and say it's an objective truth, but I do truly believe that the polarity that exists in the United States, the division that exists, is created by the political media corporate class to distract people from the real problem, which is the money. They go, all fix the money, fix the world is something I've been saying for years because I truly think people shouldn't be squabbling over red team, blue team. It's not like, look at the central banks. Their, their ability to print money ex nihilo has led to this misallocation of capital that's basically led to the, the, uh, the chains that we have in the modern day. Like, again, the, the digital panopticon that's being erected. You go back to Nixon taking us off the gold standard. Uh, you have the uh, like NAFTA in the 90s. You have the Patriot Act in the early 2000s. And then the reaction to the great financial crisis in 2008. These are all just like fractal events that force more control, more granular control on, on the economy and the populace at large. It's all stems back to the ability of the money print to uh, get us in the crazy amount of debt, get us in the crazy wars, and uh, hyper-centralize the financial system so they can control the movement of money. As Bitcoin's obviously become a parallel structure, a great alternative to fiat currency, uh, I'm curious what you guys think if, because I, I hear these headlines every once in a while of Biden signing some bill that will investigate, should Bitcoin be regulated? And and when I hear regulated, of, of course, like restricted and starting to be controlled by the government, do you think they'll, they being those in office right now, they'll be able to be successful in putting some level of control and government accountability on Bitcoin? Not on Bitcoin, the protocol, maybe on the exchanges and other centralized third parties that operate on top of it and provide services for Bitcoiners. But no, they'll never be able to actually make a pull request in the Bitcoin core GitHub and say, make sure that you... Uh, have everybody associate their identity with their public address. Like that'll never get merged into the Bitcoin protocol. So as long as you're running the software yourself, you should be pretty inoculated from that type of, of you know, you'll be inoculated to a grade. They can come after you personally. But again, I think these people are on the losing end of a trend that they're not going to be able to reverse. Just look at them. They can't even speak. Joe Biden's losing his mind in front of the country. Nancy Pelosi's losing her mind in front of the country. They, yeah, they have no, <laughs> they have no, and that, again, this is another thing I want to, I try to do with this podcast and really trying to like shake people up. What you awakening with JP, I think you're trying to do the same thing. It's like, we like we, we should stop listening to these people. We have the capacity and the ability to, to build a world without asking permission from, from these politicians. Permissionless innovation per yeah, se. Exactly. I think, I mean, one of the things I used, you, you put this tweet out and I responded to you, put the photo of Pelosi and JFK. And what that gave me so much hope was like, we're building the future we want to live in. It's just a function of time mm -hmm. because these individuals, as all things do, will eventually. And, and I think what's cool, at least my hope, 
is that like, I think this community is legitimately building the world that they want to live in. And it's just a matter of time. It's inevitable to me. Like, I think like I get kind of nervous about it. I'm like, oh, but like, I think what we're doing is the true future of the world. And it's to me very clear that there's only one option. And then when people wake up and they just realize this is better, right? Like everything with Bitcoin is better. If you build a social network that accredits users based upon actual money and everything downstream from that is built on that, it's better. If you're sending money across the world using Bitcoin as the like as the movement of the money protocol, it is better. It's faster. It's more efficient. I think humans want to be efficient. They want to be better. It's just inevitable. Yeah. And piggybacking on that, I think as a lot of Bitcoiners get uh, bogged down with the now, They're like, oh, it's not perfect now. But if you zoom out and look at the progress that's made over the last 13 years, it's only been around for less than 15 years, less than a decade and a half. And yet... We've gotten to the point where Bitcoin mining is beginning to merge with the energy sector, where we have a plethora of software solutions for individuals to create private public key pairs that are open source. We have financial products that are being built. We have decentralized markets that are being built. Like if you if you look at the progress that this protocol has made in a very short amount of time, it's <laughs> extremely impressive. And then if you track that out moving forward and project that project that out moving forward and we continue the same progress or what I believe is going to happen, build in a like parabolic um, accelerating uh, trend. Uh, We're going to wake up in 2030 and be like, holy crap, it happened. And I think we're well on our way to that. There's like a, there's an analogy. I wrote this post, like zoom out. Like I think the, the, the price and the growth of Bitcoin is, is a good proxy to your human soul. When you were born, you were a baby. You were a child. You went through all these things. You might have very good days. You might have very bad days. You, I mean, every human deals with this and I deal with that. And if the price is volatile, but if you look at the time horizon of not just the growth of the price, but the, but the impact of the network, it's only going in one direction. It's inevitable again in, in that way. So like us being hopeful that we're, we're all going in one direction and some of the smartest people in the world are working on to fix these issues, right? It's not like we're not, we're sitting, the, the cool thing about this conversation also is like, we're not sitting back talking about this stuff, right? Like you're a creator making impact and informing people about what's going on in the world. You're one of the most influential comedians that talks about the things. And then together as partners, we're building an actual tech product that defeats all this stuff and writing books about it, right? Like there's people doing shit to change the world, not just chirping. And I think that's the, that's the cool impact that I also see. Yeah. It's happening. I'm sure you see this with content. Like that's the way you could, you know, this doesn't only apply to Bitcoin. I apply it to content too. Like content for the newsletter and this podcast, like consistency is key. Just show up and work day in and day out. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, you're going to have episodes that don't get as many views as others. But as long as you're there building, iterating, getting better, like over time, you can get to a YouTube page of what, 2.2 million people. Um, I'm not sure if that's how you think about your work, but for me, applying it to this, working at Barstool, that's what Dave Portnoy always said is blog never sleeps. You got to show up every day and one day you'll wake up and it'll be uh, something. I was, I was very impressed by you, Marty. Actually, I remember when we did our launch, you went home and wrote the, that night you went home and wrote and you wrote patience because it was one of the things that we said on stage and you wrote a post about it. And I remembered because I saw it at one in the morning. I was like, Marty's like, that's baller to like, go to a thing, it's already really late. And then you go home and finish and writing that entire 
thing, that consistency of your newsletter, I think is the impact of why you've grown so much as well. Very impressive. What's your creative process as far as time, consistency? Curious what that structure looks like for you. There's no real structure around it. It's just when I, whenever I feel inspired at some point in the day and have time start writing, I don't like to force it, but what I'll find is what hap- what's happening lately is I've got a two-year-old son and my wife uh, is very pregnant with our second child. A two-year-old. How old is he? Two years old. It's a hilarious question, wasn't it? Right. <laughs> so he's, it's a handful wife's very pregnant so i gotta help out um so i'll find most days these days i won't be able to write until after he's in bed and we've been fed and then i'll sit down and it'll get out at like 1 a.m but yeah i'll just sit there with my laptop and then at some point i'll be like all right i'm ready to write and just go for it and how long is a typical writing session for you <sighs> an hour to three hours depending on how excited i am about a particular topic yeah I can relate. I've got a 15 month old son at home and the the process used to be different, but with him around, which is, I mean, such a blessing it is. I've found I have to be pretty flexible with when and where I do my writing. Yeah. It's, uh, that's funny too. I mean, I, I was at a point, uh, before my, my son came into the world where I thought I need to like smoke pot, right? Like I was a, uh, habitual marijuana smoker for like a decade. Uh, and then when my son came, like the three months leading up to my son being born, I stopped smoking pot and I thought it was going to affect my writing, but it actually like made it better. The point I'm trying to make is uh, your routine and the way you approach things is going to change and you just got to be okay with that. And actually, I think it sharpened my writing at some point. Um, maybe th- approach things differently. Stopping or starting? Stopping sharpened your writing? Stopping. Yeah. I thought, I, I thought I was dependent on weed to like be creative. Um, I'm not, which is, uh, was, was a good, uh, a good realization. Do you think, do you think that that energy of the creative, like how, how, I guess what am I trying to ask when you stopped did that, did it increase the volume of it? it? It became more, yeah, it became more clear. I wasn't stoned writing about stuff. <laughs> um, in my mind, not as distracted per se. Yeah. Yeah. It's a creative process. It's beautiful. Uh, have y'all read Stephen Pressfield's book, The War on Art? No, Negative. I have not. It's great book. The gist of it, spoiler alert, is you take the time to show up every day. It's kind of like, yeah, showing up in the birthing room to let something creative come out. And to me, that's the... The most important part and is very simple of take time, show up and see what wants to come through you. And I personally think a creative process is as essential for people's health as sleeping, nutrition, exercise. I think creativity has got to be in there. It is deeply impactful on our psyches and for, because I live most of my life with no creative process, no creative outlet. It wasn't until, um, what was I 33 when I started doing comedy videos that I had any kind of creative expression. And I look at that, I'm thinking like not letting any creativity out. What if you didn't poop 
for <laughs> a decade and you, you get very physically constipated and that's not good. Energy wants to move through you. And I think psychological constipation happens if someone doesn't have some level of a creative outlet. I think it's very essential to our mental health. There's a poet named Mark Nepo, and I've heard him say he believes all violence is a symptom of unexpressed creativity. Mm. So basically misdirected energy mm -hmm. because someone doesn't have a creative outlet. And I can't validate what he said, if it's true or not true, yet it's pretty intriguing. It's very intriguing, and, and you, especially in the context of modernity where uh, people are forced to be cogs in a machine where they're working nine to five, sitting in Excel all day, creating PowerPoints all day. Most people and uh, just creativity is objectively suppressed in the workforce. Then they get home, they're too tired. I mean, it's, so what am I going to do? It starts even earlier. I mean, I feel like school has fundamentally failed the creative spirit of individuals. Like I, I legitimately, I, got under a 2.0 in high school, which basically means I flunked out of high school without flunking out of high school. I, I go to a community college to get into a university. I go to university and, and I, I'm legitimately a, like a, not a good student. Even when I graduate college, I'm legitimately not a good student because I'm being suppressed. But in the same situation, I'm vice president of my student body. I'm the president of the marketing club. And the dean of my university pulls me aside the day I'm like a week before my graduation. He's like, listen, we've never had someone speak at a graduation that has this low of a GPA, but there's either two things that's going to happen. You're either going to go to jail or you're going to be really successful. So we'd like you to speak for the, for the school. What, what an and, honor. And what an honor, bro. But then like, I look at that and I'm like, school has failed this concept of creativity. Like you cannot be creative inside of a normal schooling environment. Like I understand if you want to be an engineer or a doctor, you go learn certain things, but like it's failed most individuals. Yeah. And like, it's, I think it stems from that. And then just like goes all the way into the workforce. And now you're a 30 year old that can't express yourself. You can't really be who you want. And you're sitting to a, well, you can go, you can go back to the modern day public schooling system is the seed of the color revolution that we were talking about earlier. You know, like what is the Austrian public school model exported to the U.S. very early on in the 20th century. And it's just like a slow drip over time. And that mom, hey, sit in your seat, get in line, stand up, praise the flag. Uh, yeah. And that's why, I mean, I, I feel lucky that my parents sent me to a Montessori day, day, uh, daycare growing up in pre-K. And I think, honestly, like just a few years of having that creatively focused uh, schooling like it was very impressionable for me for the rest of my life isn't yeah. like the most billionaires like per capita all went to montessori mm -hmm. I think I've, I've, I've heard that stat before is that right i, I think i think all the major billionaires that are like famous They've all went to Montessori. They didn't yeah, go to I, sh I should enroll in a Montessori elementary <laughs> school, just set myself up to become a billionaire. Because you're going to identify as a child now. So yes. that makes a lot I of actually, sense. Actually, in my stand-up <laughs> routine, I've got a bit about I identify as a kid and I'm playing peewee football. And <laughs> well, that's what, I mean, if we keep going down this road, at some point it's going to happen. And yeah, it, it's, yeah. But you got to destroy objective truth in a slow drip. Yes. Because, I mean, it, 10 years ago, if you told someone 
what's going on today. You get kicked off Twitter. If you call someone who's born a biological male, call them a man, you're kicked off Twitter. Nobody would believe you, but we've gotten here drip by drip. And a friend of mine, Mickey Willis, he uses, it's a term of his and it says so much. It's brilliant. Weaponized morality. So when you look at people believing and acting on things that are destroying our country and probably making their own lives worse, they're, they're not bad people who are doing it. They're not idiots. They're not dumb. They're people who have been manipulated by weaponized morality. So these are good people who want to do the right thing. It's just, they've been told that the right thing, uh, well, let me say they've been told that the wrong thing is the right thing. So you get good people doing bad things while thinking they're good things. And that's where you can have, you know, buildings burnt down under the guise of uh, positive change. Yeah. Peaceful riots, peaceful protests with fire. Peaceful violence. Yeah, it's at war. And and that's the other thing, too, is like the framework of acceptable debate is so constrained where people are like, oh, I can only communicate in this box of this framing of any particular subject. And they've been literally put in a box of discussion where they, they don't even recognize that they can take it outside the box and open it up. Like it doesn't have to be like a perfect example is President Biden recently, like you either get sanctions or World War III. It's like, what? How are those the only two options? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) De-escalate. Relax, everybody. And they make everybody believe like, oh, it's sanctions or World War III. Yeah. Like sanctions. I think Biden, Putin, uh, Zelenko, and and help throw in Xi Jinping, the communist leader. I think they all need to be in a room. No, a forest. And they, they should be forced to do MDMA for an entire afternoon. <laughs> cool. Like, and then, then make your decisions. But I, I think these guys need to do drugs together. Yeah, I, I agree. I think most people should do drugs together. Yeah. It changes you. I mean, shrooms changed my life. I could say Did that. They? I could say that for certain. Yeah. What's, what's your typical protocol with psilocybin? Uh, more recently. Uh, I like to do, I, I like to take like smaller doses. I don't take any hero doses anymore. I took those early on and I feel like I've seen what I needed to see, but I do like, uh, every maybe twice a year, once a quarter, maybe depending on the particular year I'll do like a, like a half dose and mm. just chill out my, my brother and family members, friends and get into it. Do you, do you microdose on any regular basis? No, not regularly. I did it. I experimented with it at some point, but, uh, I don't, I don't feel the need to do it yet. And again, having, uh, maybe it's just stigma, but yeah, having small children, like I, I would feel weird being, yeah, um, I could understand that being, uh, being, uh, being under the influence and having to be, present uh, that's my biggest worry with that is yeah. having a small killer right like i can't mommy why is daddy talking to invisible fairies <laughs> yeah. well daddy's uh very shroomed out right now yeah but I, you know it's interesting i robert breedlove gave me this analogy while we were on a call once and it stuck with me so much how and it will come back to bitcoin a little bit is like bitcoin is the psychedelic of money mm. 
And the concept is like, you know, if you take a psychedelic, what it basically does is it resets your default mode network. It resets mm. all. It's like the reset button kind of on your brain. And you kind of reframe a lot of things. I think Bitcoin does that for a lot of things in our life. It's that it is the psychedelic of money in the sense that like all the preconceived notions that you understood about how the monetary system worked, when you understand the fundamentals of what it is, it really makes you think and say, hey, is this really how objective reality should be in relation to the way that we spend things and who's in control and how it all works? And I think that's why they match very well. I think psychedelics and Bitcoin are very much in the same kind yeah. of realm. I mean, I had Tucker Max on a couple months ago and he's he went through psilocybin therapy and he attributes it to changing his life. And I do, and I, he said something during that episode I agree with. It's like, I think we need to make it more common. Like it, it helps people unlock their creativity. So yeah. I think when I first took it, it, I started writing like soon after that, like keeping a journal. Um, yeah, it really forces you to, I think psilocybin specifically forces you to be like, oh crap, you can like perceive things differently and there's different ways to, to approach different subjects. Um, and Bitcoin is definitely uh, one of those things that has a similar effect when you're, when you're thinking of, of money. Like, oh crap, like this thing is, I like the, and it's cars heard me describe it like this, but I see Bitcoin as just like this huge light pillar in a, um, a large public square that anybody can just like anchor into. It's just like this very strong anchoring force that anybody can, can plug into at any time they want to. Yeah. I, I think at a, I may sound a little airy fairy here, but I think even at a spiritual level, Bitcoin's very significant. I think, you know, a spirituality in a sense for me is unity and connection, whereas lack of spirituality is disconnection, division, where, you know, it's where problems come from. But yet Bitcoin is very uniting. I mean, it's anybody can use it. It's very uniting in the direct sense where it's decentralized. You send a payment directly to me, vice versa, no centralized authorities in the way. Uh, which I think has been, you know, the centralized century is all about division. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that division, of course, keeping people somewhat disconnected from each other, but also disconnected from their own power, needing to rely on someone else, a central bank in this case, or a centralized social media company, that's, that's disempowering because it means we're not we don't have the power ourselves. We need someone, something outside of ourselves. And to me, that's the old paradigm. And Bitcoin obviously goes in the uniting direction, power back to the people. And to me, even though it's a very technical thing, it's also a very spiritual thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, especially when you think about money, money is arguably the most important tool that we use when half of every transaction is money so you have to have trust and, and like when you bring like the spiritual realm into it, like how do you how do you uh, lower lower your guards a bit and have enough trust to interact with somebody bitcoin allows you to do that so it creates a pretense from which you can have more honest and trustworthy interactions in, in a certain way even though which is funny because it's a trustless system but anchoring into the trustless system is like, all right, I trust this because it cannot be manipulated. Yeah. 
Is it considered a trustless system because it's open source? You can verify yeah. all of it yourself. Verification is the the important the important part that makes okay. it trustless. Don't trust verify. It's the big. Uh, I've was, heard that. It's the big trope. We've, we've said it a few times. Yeah. <laughs> we started getting into stuff like I don't know. We were we were on a, one of our investors' podcasts last week, and I was like, I'm talking a little bit about Zion. I was like, listen, at the end of the day, don't like don't listen to it. Don't just listen to what I'm saying. Like we put everything on the internet for everyone to look at. Like you can't, we're not, like, if you don't trust me, it's fine. It's all open source. We have no code that isn't public for anyone to look at at any time. It's a weird reframe to think about that running a business. Like it's just like one of those interesting things like, yeah, hundred percent open source. Everything we do is public available. Go look at it. Yeah. And it creates the condition for better competition too. Cause I think about it too. We're thinking about, we are building somewhat of like a Substack competitor. Um, using Ghost and BTC Pay server, and mm. it'll all be open source. And it's like, oh, how do you how do you monetize that? It's like, well, you got to create like a better service. And like, podcasting 2.0 is like a perfect example. Zion is a perfect example. Like, yeah, it's the 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 future of all this stuff is like name states are what are going to be what differentiates products, right? When a name state is kind of like a brand, is like what is the brand that you're building within that system? assuming that all technical architecture is always the same, right? And the user experience is the other thing that you could build on top of. Those are the two things that you could beat out in terms of competition instead of like proprietary code or proprietary this and, you know, like the patent system kind of going away a little bit because it's not as good for the world, right? As, uh, as COVID has taught us. Uh, yeah, you can I mean, patent everything. Maybe the patent system created some perverse incentives and in, in whether or not uh, certain treatments should have been divvied out during, during yeah. that whole thing. That's a rabbit hole. Uh, I'm going to fall down that later today. <laughs> <laughs> not going to force I, it on you guys. No, no, I'm not smart I, enough, actually. I've but. dove down that rabbit hole many times. So <laughs> I'll see you down there this afternoon. <laughs> uh, so what drove you guys to, to write a book? Unapologetic Freedom. Ooh. I told Justin it would be wrong to write a book because it's very uninclusive to the illiterate community. <laughs> <laughs> so this thing came about as all things in our world, just like randomly. So I was at ACL this year and I saw a guy that I hadn't seen in about two years. He, uh, he was a, a, he wrote a bunch of books and I said, we had this idea to do a talk at the Bitcoin conference. It's like, and the talk idea that JP and I came up with was like defeating censorship through the Bitcoin standard. That was a talk we wanted to do together. And it was just an idea. We pitched the conference about it and they're like, oh, cool idea. And then I was talking and the guy was like, hey, that should be a book. So I had written an outline for this talk, right? We talk about, we, we'd open up with like the current state of censorship the centralized century versus the decentralized century, peer governance versus platform governance, freedom through encryption and Bitcoin. Like these were all the chapters and I was going to do a 20 minute talk about it. The guy's like, you should make that a book. And I was like, oh man, like I'm running this company. Like we're in the middle of all this growth. I'm, I got to do all these things. Like how the fuck am I going to write a book? I make a phone call to one of my friends, Aaron. And I was like, hey, we want to write a book. We, we think we want to write a book. I actually called him first. Should we write a book? Then I called Aubrey. I was like, Aubrey, should I write a book? He's like, yeah, why not? And then- <laughs> Great so, advice. Okay. And then so this, so this guy, Phil, which was like, he's a writer of some amazing books out there. He's like, I will write this with you. This is how we're going to do it. And we're going to do it in eight weeks. We're going to do a chapter a week for eight weeks. 
and we're going to get on phone calls and we're going to go through your ideas. And then I'm going to help you put it all together and, and do that. And we started that process in, at the, basically the end of November and we had a finished book by the end of January. And then that's the thing that you're sitting kind of in front of you here. And it's just, it's, it's all of our ideas of why did we build this whole thing? What's the, what's the true current state of censorship? Why does it exist? How did it come about? And we just figured it's like our, our beliefs in, in, in everything that we do every day. It's our mission. It's like, and that's why we wrote it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, of course I, I want to give all the credit to Justin. It's, his book. And I'm of course, honored to write the foreword for it. And you know, what, what excited me about putting a book out there is I just want people to know, uh, I want people to know what I didn't know a year ago. And that's the problems of censorship, the problems of manipulative algorithms, the problems of being controlled by central companies, banks that we're enslaved to, there's an answer to those problems. And a year ago, I didn't know there was an answer, but meeting Justin and of course, learning about Zion, getting involved in Zion, where it's tech built on Bitcoin, which therefore allows it to solve these problems of censorship, control, all the things. I just want people to know there's this solution available you know, it's new, it's cutting edge. And I find the Bitcoiner world, they're all about like, yeah, of course this is available. But the Bitcoin world of, you know, the the techie minds can be, uh, there can be a gap between that world and the lay person. And, you know, there's billions of lay people out there. I'm a, a lay person when it comes to technical knowledge. And, these people's lives are affected by these problems and the problems will get worse unless there's a better solution presented to them. So I just wanted people to know, Hey, uh, here's Bitcoin and here's what it can do relative to these problems that affect your lives. So you said you found Bitcoin as a solution around a year ago. What was your state of mind before you found Bitcoin, were you looking for something like it? Were, were you optimistic, pessimistic? No. Dude, it's so embarrassing. My my state of mind was so ignorant. I I thought Bitcoin was just like this giant pyramid scheme. It's <laughs> it's something that's not inherently valuable. The only reason why people think it's valuable is because they think other people think it's valuable. And then uh uh friend of mine, Tony Robbins, sent me a video where he was interviewing Michael Saylor, a a private video for his Platinum Partner members. And he's just a a very generous person. So he sent me the video, said, I think you might enjoy this. So I watched it. And anybody who's seen Michael Saylor talk about Bitcoin, he's just, he's a wizard. He communicates the importance of it and what it actually is in a way that I had never seen before. So Michael Saylor woke me up realizing like, all right, here's why Bitcoin is actually valuable as an asset. And then as a, a, you know, system, as a protocol, like, holy Lord, I didn't know it was possible to build other tech on top of Bitcoin. So my mind was blown. So I went from just thinking Bitcoin's like this stupid pyramid scheme. It's never going to last to seeing, oh, Bitcoin is actually, 
you know, the safest, most secure monetary system on the planet, but it can also do a lot more than that. It can, it can address these problems that had affected my life, censorship, uh, fear of being deplatformed. It can solve those problems. I knew the, I, I knew those were problems, but I didn't know there was any solution. Yeah. I mean, you think of money is the uh, outside of just spoken word that we're having right now that cannot be censored. Like unless you like physically came over and put your hand over my mouth or killed me. But like money is the, the, the freest expression of, of uh, speech at the end of the day. You put value behind what you believe in, whether it be uh, in the economy, politically, philosophically. You can invest in, in what you want to see in the world via money by purchasing things or investing in things. And so freeing money is the, the first, again, fix the money, fix the world, the first step towards rebuilding um, a, a world that's built on truth and the ability to, to speak without having being censored because you can, you can spend your money how you see fit. Yeah. And you know, one of our hopes of why we did this also was like, it was super short, right? It's a, it's, you can read this book on a three hour flight. So you can read it. The audiobook's two hours and 15 minutes long. If you want to listen to JP and I's voice for two hours and 15 minutes, almost like a podcast. And we want it to be very punchy and just very informative. Like, Hey, this is why censorship happens. This is how it works, but there's hope. And it's a thing called Bitcoin. And this is how Bitcoin can defeat censorship around the world. And I had never imagined that after we finished this publication, Canada does exactly the thing we said. I mean, the chapter six of the book outlines like a nation state potentially like literally censoring transactions. And then we fast forward to what's happening in Russia. Like this trips me out. Like the fact that you can turn off an entire country's payment rails. That's the, it's absurd to me that like, wait, we have the power to do that. Like we could just turn off a country and say, you can't spend money anymore throughout this because it's on this credit card payment. Like it's the absurdity that's occurring is almost like, oh, we had to kind of outline this in some sort of a publication should live as a record, right? Like a standard of record per se. Yeah. I mean, the last, last two months have been some of the greatest uh, advertisements for Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, I we People are like Bitcoin I, needs a marketing team. It's like no, the, no, the I mean, aspects I, will do it. I, for I, we, Trudeau. We, we were about to like just announce Justin Trudeau as the CMO of Zion, which was amazing. That was a good, good, good little, <laughs> little and you know the VP is great. Yeah, well, great and really sad. I mean, that's the other thing is like it's really sad for the people. Oh right? yeah. Like I heard a story like there was some friends like in Russia, like left Russia. They were like traveling around Europe and they couldn't like their credit cards were all turned off. Yeah, and it's, it's like, it's like, why? What did those people do? Like they didn't, they didn't want to go to war. They didn't like, why do you got to turn off their credit cards? Yeah. Thanks. Well, it's, it's like these virtue signaling companies are like, oh, Russia bad. So let's throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and punish all Russians, which is extremely xenophobic, number one. <laughs> and Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the whole premise of it is illogical. You know, the, just going by the mainstream narrative, it's essentially Putin is a bad, evil dictator who doesn't care about the world, doesn't care about his people, only power. Cool. So if you hurt the people, shut off their credit cards, make it hard for them to buy food, make it impossible for them to travel. If you hurt the people, well, if the evil dictator is truly as heartless as you say he is, he won't give a shit. 
if they're being hurt. So I I don't think it's a logical premise. And it's terrifying that we're in a position where that can even happen, then let alone the fact that it is happening, having people govern your financial transactions. And even worse, I think you cut the people off from the rest of the world and the evil dictator goes, yes, they're against you. They come, I'm for you. Like, I'm here to help you. Right. Then you have fog of war. People like, yeah, maybe he's right. Just get closer to Putin. It's completely counterproductive. I mean, again, I think a lot of this is being run by intelligence agencies who who want chaos so that they can usher in things that will control us more. Uh, I think there's a lot of facts out there that you can find, and probably not on Twitter or anywhere else. But and there again, there's a concerted effort to to sow chaos to push us in this, into this panopticon. Yeah, and I think that's why we we need we need to start building systems again, like rebuilding systems per se, that give us that freedom of expression. Like one thing that's tripped me out over the past like couple of months is this like, besides the Bitcoin thing is like this concept of like identity online and like who owns your digital identity. And like we went down this rabbit hole with Daniel like over the last couple of months and building uh, V2. And like it, it, it tripped me out to like, cause I use, I use, I've used Gmail for a long time and I use Gmail to log into almost everything, including my bank. And then you like wake up one day and you're like, wow the base layer of my identity online, I don't even own. And I have zero control over it. And at one point, Google can decide to turn me off for whatever reason doesn't be. And then everything I've logged into downstream, I don't own any of it. Nothing, nothing. I have no access to my own identity online. And you go down to like, what are the downstream effects to all of that? And then it's like, okay, well, there's an opportunity. You know, there'll be a little bit more work, but we got to build a new system. I mean, it is literal digital slavery and the fact that those companies are using your data to sell to somebody else. They're making money off your sweats, your data sweat, if you will. 1.5 billion Gmail accounts downstream log into centralized services across everything. Mm. Every 1.5 billion people around the world. That's how they, that is their digital identity online. So Google owns their digital identity. And then all the downstream effects from that, right? So you use your Gmail to then log into your bank. Then you use your Gmail to log into your Facebook, for example, and your Instagram. That's a, another highly centralized service inside of another realm. And all the, like, it's like the amount of control we actually don't have online is immense. Everything. And, and I mean, Bitcoin and Lightning Network specifically create a really interesting design space for this. So like, that's big question. I'm still, I don't want to say skeptical. I'm still questionable about like digital identity, particularly as it like pertains to- Like DIDs? Yeah, like I don't know, like do I want my lightning node associated with my identity? Like can people see how much I'm spending? How much is in that node? Do I want that? Do we do I even want a public identity? So like what we're doing with the Substack competitors, like you can buy a subscription and get the paid uh you can get the paid articles if you pay the subscription, you'll just get them sent automatically. However, if you don't want to do a subscription, you just like the reading something from this particular writer every once in a while, you can do a payment paywall. There's like, boom, pay 10 cents worth of sats and you get the article. A la carte. Yeah, a la carte. No email, no nothing. Um, but with the subscription model, it's like, okay. Okay, okay. Wait, no, you can do it with Bitcoin. And it's like, how do you 
how do you authenticate moving forward? But how would IP you do? Address, how would yeah. you do a subscription with Bitcoin? <laughs> that's a good question. It's a problem we're trying to solve. Yeah, I mean that's the thing that we're like. It's like, like, I, like, do you just limit it to IP? Do a lot of people want to access this via Tor or a VPN? And then you have that whole design space. So maybe like a DID is the thing, but it's like, how can you limit the amount of information shared by that DID? Well, that's that's the I think that's the layer of like I think there's three things that I've been focusing all my energy on. Right? Is like how do you fix identity? How do you fix data storage? And then how do you fix the money? Right? So Zion, what's cool about especially the V2 is that we establish all those three things, but verifiable credentials is the next layer of a DID. And it's like, you get to share selective information across your DID. For an example, Daniel was giving us an example the other day. If you go to a bar, the only thing that that bar needs to verify is that you're 21 years old. They don't need to know your house address. They don't need to know your driver's license number. They don't need to know your color of your eye. They don't need to know any of these other information. They don't even need to know how old you are. They just need to know they just you're 21 know. or over. And this is where like zero knowledge proofs come in. It's like you can use a DID to do all these fanciful things of you don't actually have to pass back your actual information. It just needs to verify that you're over this age. And that's, I think the beauty of where these systems are going is that if you can own your base layer identity and then selectively choose what information you give to certain things, there's a whole new world that opens up into this, this aspect, even authorizations, right? Like right now, if you auth on the web, typically you have to give up your email or you have to give up your password. You have to give up all these things. But in the world of a DID, if you're authing off a QR code, you can selectively decide what is given to that website. Maybe it's just a payment. Maybe it's just a name. Maybe it's just, but the, the idea of VCs can allow for these, you know, it's like, it's like selective data transfer. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and it's, to me, the extreme level of privacy, like why, like, this is a question I kept asking myself is like, why is Zion V2 moving to this DID infrastructure? Why are we moving to identity hubs? The truth is we don't want to be liable for the amount of information that's running through our system, right? Every day we get a new notification that this got hacked, this got hacked, this got hacked. If we use DIDs and we are using DIDs, we actually don't even have access to the private information of our users and our customers. We have none of that. We have no information stored on our own, our own servers. It's all encrypted on your own DID. It's all encrypted on your own identity hub and we don't have access to it. So even if we were hacked, every individual has to be hacked on a one-by-one -one basis to go get that information. So for us, it's even, we're removing liability and also increasing our users' privacy. It gives, it becomes the safest place and most civil place on the internet. Yeah. That's why we were discussing this last week. I need to get Daniel on to better understand the idea. I've talked about it with Mike Brock from TDEX uh, that Blocks is building, uh, TBDEX, excuse me. Uh, like what I really want to hone in is like, all right, if you create a DID, is it uh, the, the creation of your identity insulated to stuff that you control? Like, is there, can anybody glean information? Uh, if you choose so. Yeah, I I know I, I agree with that, but like starting it out, like when you create your DID. Yeah. So like does that happen in a trustless, sovereign, private? So way? the you mean the first way you start it? Yeah. Like who I, has access to that information? Well, I think, you know, our approach is we're gonna be using Ion, right? Mm -hmm. So it's layer two Bitcoin that was established by the like partners like Microsoft and Block and 
who establishes that first? It's it, it's actually a I think a pull request from the Ion hub, like the actual hub that you're establishing that's interoperable yeah. across the networks. I think like the hope also is that if you can build a base standard for identifiers, then you can start having conversations across applications, right? Like you can start like potentially the idea is that Zion will be interoperable with TBDEX when that's launched. Mm -hmm. So you can message from this service to our service interoperably with, and that's over like this, you know, like what we're doing with Sphinx right now. But unfortunately, like, I don't think Sphinx is going to be the standard. I think this is going to be the standard. Well, we get into the question though, like, I mean, that's like the, the panopticon comes around like digital identity. Like you cannot do this unless you share your DID. Like that's what I worry about. Are we erecting something we're trying to run away from? Um, like but, why need identity at all? Like why? That's, well, like, I, I think for like, I mean, I look at JP as a creator. I think what's really cool is that in, in a future world, if JP has his DID and this is, you can have many DIDs, but this is the established awaken with JP DID. He has an identity hub attached to it. We know through verifiable credentials who JP, what JP's DID is. Any service in the world that, and any new app that wants to come about can, can go and show the information on JP's DID and know that that's owned by JP. And there doesn't have to be a new centralized network, another new walled garden. So that, the innovation can come at a different layer, not the layer of data storage and identity. You can have innovation in new ways and not rebuilding like, cause right now every new social network is rebuilding something else. It's another walled garden, building another walled garden, it's building another walled garden, but the future should be this interoperable layer like email, like SMTP, like how websites are built with, with DNS. Like it should be like that. That's how apps should be on an open web infrastructure. I agree. And, and, and I feel the, you know, to me, the importance of that concern of needing to show an ID or a DID for everything, like to buy broccoli at the grocery store. It's like, yeah, that's getting into a really controlled state. So for me, uh, I, I think acknowledging there's there's a balance where there's very appropriate ways that I feel having privacy and therefore needing a DID to access whatever that is, I feel as though that's a structure that enhances and supports freedom. But of course, knowing the other polarity exists of, okay, if we're living in a place where Klaus Schwab's making everybody show some kind of identity to buy broccoli and social credit score, obviously that's not a good thing. Yeah. But I, I think the balance of when you need a identity, DID seem to be where it's at in order to help protect and preserve sovereignty and freedom. Yeah. And so that's one of the big lingering questions in my mind pulling on that thread is like, do we, do we fight? Like, is it a combination of fighting this impending specter of Klaus Schwab's view of the world as a, part like fighting in the social realm and then part building in the digital realm and using the social realm to ensure that the panopticon does not get erected like agreeing in meat space like hey this shit is inherently bad for freedom and humanity like let's like let's agree to take the design space of the digital world in a certain direction that that respects our autonomy and in, in meat space like do you need the two um, to reinforce each other, probably. But I think I, I think the strategy would be to build a big enough system online and then it will translate to the real world, right? Because like one thing that we talk about is like, there's like 
the fear of the network state is very high right now, right? Like, like the fear of, we opened this conversation of like the fear of being banned by YouTube. YouTube is a network state, right? Yeah. It's a state which we live on and we share and, and have conversations. So there has to be a, a, a different alternative network state that not a single company necessarily owns. Um, and not a single company can just turn off individuals within that network state. And right now we don't have a true alternative. We right now only have these massively centralized systems and the other ones are so bifurcated and complicated. No one's really like, no, people are kind of on them, but not really. They're half in, half out. So I think first we have to establish something that's like at the bleeding out of culture that everyone uses. That's the new standard. And then from there, people will follow. Yeah. That's my belief. We have to like build it before they build it. I agree. I think again, like I said, 13 years in, I think we built something pretty impressive. And the other thing too, like, the enemy is floundering in front of us as well. Like we just need to make sure that people can have the information at their fingertips to understand what Bitcoin is, and then obviously the the UX of the on ramps to to get on and and use it. Because I I think particularly here in the United States, I don't think inflation is going away anytime soon. I think the supply chain issues are being exacerbated. Uh, and I think people are going to be getting angrier and angrier as $400 grocery bills and $100 gas tank fill-ups become the norm. Um, yeah. It, when you said the uh, enemy is floundering in front of us, uh, what do you mean by that? And like, I, I guess, like, how do you see them floundering? Yeah, they're losing all legitimacy. Again, going back, we have Octagon, 80-year-olds that can't even speak. It's becoming very obvious that they don't have as much control as they'd like us to believe they do. Inflation, again, hitting 40-year all-time highs month over month, supply chains not getting fixed, um, and just the blatant hypocrisy uh, of it all. Yeah, I I agree. And I've, I've been saying, uh, I, I think the authoritarians who, like, cool, we see through, like, you can't even talk. We know something's going on. I think they're one of the greatest forces of awakening on the planet right now because they're they're not doing that good at staying hidden. So I, to me, the more they talk, the more they reveal. They're not sending their best anymore. <laughs> the, 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 it used to be the smartest people were in government. That's how it used to be. Why? Because in order to scale your business, you needed to be in government. But now... In a lot of ways, the smartest people are in business because you don't, you're not required to have government to scale or to be successful. And now wow. arguably some of the dumbest people in our society as, as a macro lens of society are, are running systems and they've gone to that place because of their acting and manipulation of how they are in the world. And that to me is like the, it's the atrocity of what's gone downstream, right? It's, it's this, it's the same effect of this, like centralized century versus decentralized century. The moment like the transistor hit the eighties, the nineties, it's like the people that started moving into private sector versus government changed. And then that began the 30 to 50 year decline of what we're seeing today. And you look at these individuals, like, like, would you ever assign that individual to be a CEO of a tech company right now? Absolutely not. No, well, absolutely I would, not. I would argue they've always been sociopathic. <laughs> people who should not be in the positions of power that they are. It's just, again, the information age is making it blatantly obvious to, to those who can find the information. Yeah. Like it's, you have to be a sociopath. Like, so I would argue like, no, like the smartest minds have always been in private industry 
and the sociopathic ones have turned it towards government because they want control over us. It's just, again, the, the, the process playing out over decades has gotten to a point where it's like unavoidable that these people are sociopathic. Uh, in the private sector, I mean, in gov- everything government touches goes to shit. That's yeah. been happening for decades. Yeah. You look at how beautiful a, an experience that being at the DMV is, <laughs> and that's, that's what the government turns things into. And, you know, I, I'm grateful for our government. There's so many blessings in our lives where, because of the government. So I don't want to sound all negative yet to be realistic there's some limitations. Everything they touch turns to shit. Yeah. Some ways. And that's what I'm, and again, trying to like not get caught in the pessimism of the short term. Like zoom me out. The last two years have been incredible for states rights, which is probably where we need to trend towards is uh, getting away from the federal government and having Florida, Texas, South Dakota, even on the other side, if they want to go in the other direction, but just doing it themselves and offering like a plethora of options for individuals in the country to be like, all right, I like this menu better than that menu. So I'm going to go here. You go there. You try that out. I'm going to try this out. Just leave me alone, please. Yeah. Voting with your feet. Yes. We both did that. Yeah, we both did that. At some point you did as well. I did. Yeah. We're here for a reason. I mean, this, this, this enclave that is Austin, Texas is creating something in culture. Very strange. It's very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. But like what a small city. Cause Austin is a very small city. Like you think about one terminal airport, like you can get across town, you can go to anywhere within 20 minutes. And it's, I haven't like to meet with some of the most influential creators in the world. I haven't left the city. I didn't fly to LA for a meeting. I've never flown to LA for a meeting. And I built a tech company with creators. And I never left this place to do it. I guess I did some stuff in Miami, but I didn't go to LA as perceived like the place of culture and celebrity. Yeah. To and build this. It's and, amazing. And it's amazing how fast Austin has become this hub of innovation and amazing minds. I mean, what, five years, maybe six years. Yeah. And, and a lot of it's like, it seems like the most influential media person in the world lives here. The richest person in the world lives here. Some of the most influential companies have moved their headquarters to this place. It's very interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, just in the context of Bitcoin, like we saw last week, it was just, it seems like, so I, I escaped from New York and where this podcast started, my newsletter started, was up in New York and Austin is turning into what New York was for the Bitcoin world where I was loving being in New York because everybody would come through New York. I'd get them in the studio. We talked Bitcoin. You had the like, greatest minds at the BitDevs meetup and there's a lot of great minds still there, but a lot of people are migrating to Austin um, specifically to, to work on Bitcoin. I mean, we were here in the Bitcoin commons. There's m- more companies coming to town by, by the week, it feels like. And and I think it's the space. The, the thing that I feel when I travel to LA is that it feels very compressive because the amount of energy in that, it's like very like, there's a lot of people. And when you compress a lot of like human energy and human emotion into one single place, it creates a bit of a distraction in your mind. Here, it feels like it's a lot more expansive and expansive is like ideas. I also think the comparative of Austin is like people are coming here to build their second mountain not their first mountain. You stay in LA, New York, 
to build your first mountain and your first kind of stepping stone. And you're here to build your second mountain. The second thing that you've been able to establish some space to build that next layer of who you want to be in your life. That's why I came here for sure. Not knowing I wanted to build a Bitcoin company, by the way. I want to come here to retire. <laughs> I did. I almost, I almost moved back to Philadelphia. I can't imagine. Uh, why? What my life, that's where I'm from. That's where all my family is. Yeah. Uh, I miss my parents a lot. I do as well. Uh, my wife's from Philadelphia as well. So her family's there. But I, the, the, the draw of, all right, there's a lot to be done in Austin. The, the, the leverage on productivity is much higher here than Philly. Is probably what pushed us down here. And how long have you been here? Since October, six months. And it's crazy how productive I've been in six months. That is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm inspired, very inspired by the people, the minds around. I mean, we all know the old saying that you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with and therefore the rest of the people who are around you, they influence you. And uh, I find it very, very inspiring seeing what people in Austin are doing, having vision, having dreams, but moving their feet, going after it. And even if it's in a very different field than what I'm in, I'm still inspired by it. So uh, to me, there's a very up-leveling energy being here. You mentioned expansive, certainly that. What brought you here originally? So a feeling. I was Mm. in town, what was it? a little over four years ago, four and a half years, uh, just doing a speaking gig. Aubrey Marcus was running an event. So I came in to speak at that. And my uh, fiance, now wife, but she was with me for the weekend. We're in town, probably not even 36 hours. But by the end of the weekend, her and I looked at each other and we were both thinking, should we move to Austin? We weren't even thinking about Austin. We weren't thinking about moving anywhere, but we were, the feeling both found us. And then we came back to town about a month later just to spend a week and like, all right, let's feel, is this a yes? Is it a no? And it, after, you know, a few days we're, I'll never forget the serendipity of this is pretty interesting. We were walking into the flagship, uh, uh, whole foods downtown, mm-hmm. going to grab some, like a $27 salad for lunch as you do. <laughs> And she looked at me and said, all right, is, is Austin a hell yes for you? I said, yeah, it is. How about you? And she said, yeah, absolutely. So then we, we get our food, we're eating. And this couple came up to us and they just recognized me from my videos and talking with them. And they said, what are you guys doing in Austin? We said, well, we, we came to town to figure out if we want to move here. And we just decided yes, we do want to move here. And they said, cool. We're real estate agents. If you need us to show you around, we will. And uh, so we said, we do need real estate agents. So we signed on with them and bought our house with them. But it's just a really interesting affirmation. Literally 10 minutes after we decided, yes, we're going to move here. Here's life showing up, supporting that decision with Real estate agents. Some serendipity right there. Serendipity indeed. So I can't really explain why we moved to Austin other than it felt right. Yeah. And now in hindsight, meeting people like Justin, having a very meaningful partnership with what we're doing with Zion, 
I, I can kind of post game this and be like, all right, I see why we were meant to move to Austin. Austin early movers. It's, it's, I mean, my situation is even crazier. So COVID, so I buy a ranch in Topanga on uh, February 28, 2020. COVID happened six days later. I remodeled the place over COVID. And then June 30th happened, June 30th, 2020. I'm like, I like wake up at like 6 a.m. out of my bed. I'm like screaming. I was like, I got to move to Austin. Hmm. No reason. There's no, I had just bought a house. There was no logical reason to come to this place. I knew like four people that lived here. I knew Aubrey and my friend Jasper. Like, that's it. Like, I didn't know anybody here. I was like, I got to go to Austin. Like, I got to go. I got to go. Everyone's like, what do you mean? You just bought this house. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you just bought this place. Amazing house. I And then I didn't know until I was here. I was like, oh, that's why I had to, for this this, had, this wasn't even an idea then. There was nothing about this to ever happen. I didn't even know about the Lightning Network. It's weird. Yeah. I got recruited by Parker Lewis. We were the, talking to right before. The we mayor. Out. Yeah. The mayor of Austin Bitcoin. No way. Yeah. I mean, things just happen when people are together in person. I mean, there was like the meme of COVID showing how distributed work from home is the future. But it's like, ah, there's something about being, being in person with people that is much higher leverage than in this distributed team, which distributed team has its place and it works, but I feel like there is a necessity to get people in person as well. For sure. I heard a stat though, that like they thought 15% of people would go back to an office, but it's more like, like a lot, like 15% would want to go back, but it's like, actually like nobody wants to go back. Yeah. Like nobody wants to go back to an office five days a week. Well, I know it, it, a positive externality of all this is people working from home and being able to be with their kids during yes. the day, which is like, I know cousins, sister-in-law, brother-in-law, they love it. I'm like, holy crap, I actually get to spend more time with my kids, which is one of the most important things you can do as a parent. Yeah. It, I know I love it. You know, unless I'm on the road doing comedy shows, I'm working from home and being able to have my little guy just, little visits with him during the day, have him barge into my office, interrupt something. It's just, it's a great joy, yeah. a, a great luxury. <clears throat> and I would dare say better for the child development rather than having dad gone. And I also like my son to be able to see what I do mm. so he can have modeled for him, you know, what it is to pursue purposeful work. Mm. So yeah. Completely agree. It completely agree but uh, it's like so like wednesday my wife was an angel last week i got our spa day um at the four seasons here in austin so i'm gonna stay home with the sun i'm like take calls but it's dad day on wednesday this week and it's beautiful that i had the ability to do that but again that optionality then like coming in recording a podcast in person like if we were doing this over zoom it just wouldn't be the same yeah it is different. I mean, we've done a few on Zoom and this is, this always turns out better because we get inflection, we get tonality. I'm much better this way. Yeah. I'm just better. And I like it. Likewise. See eyes. Yeah. See it. Yeah. You got to be able to actually feel. You can't actually look into someone's eyes on a Zoom. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. You're you either try. looking at their eyes, but then they're... The cameras. Not you're not looking eyes. into their eyes because you're not looking at the camera. Yeah. If you're looking at the camera to make eye contact, you're not looking at their eyes. Yeah. Some would say we didn't know any better that human connection is good for us. Yes. 
and isolation may lead to increased levels of obesity, alcoholism, and suicide. And uh, yeah, yeah. there's a reason why isolation, solitary confinement is a form of punishment and torture. Yeah. God, we really fucked up these last few years. It's so bad. And I think about the kids too. Like, I'm lucky that my son's only two wasn't forced to wear a mask. Um, not that I would have, I would have fought uh, hand, tooth, and nail to make sure he was in a situation where he never have to. But just thinking about the development, like him, I think he's a couple months behind his speech development. It's probably because number one, he was isolated, and like and the, the potential to be around other kids wasn't as robust as it would have been if, if things were normal. And then number two, when we were in public up north, people were wearing masks. It's like, what the hell are you saying? I can't, like, I need to see your mouth and how you speak yeah. so I can learn how to speak and just apply that to millions of children. It's, I think it would go down as one of the single worst things as a result of this pandemic, which was the, the developmental behind of this generation of like, yeah. like IQ points have dropped by almost 20% in children over the past two years and their developmental cycles have, have, have regressed to such a tremendous amount. And it will go down in history as, as one of the worst mistakes we've ever made as a society. And I just hope we like admit it, yeah. right? Like I really hope we admit it. Like what's really unfortunate I think about all this stuff is also like the amount of propaganda the media has pushed towards a certain generation. Like, you know, I love my family to death and, you know, but my father and I have such massive disagreements on this point of like, I think masks on children was one of the worst things we did. And his, he fights me tooth and nail. He's like, no, but they saved, they saved my life. And I would have, you know, it's, it's, they have to be muzzled and they have to have masks because that's the, that's the thing the CDC says, like, like there's a generation that truly believes that we have to like believe the de facto mandates of the CDC when the, the CDC is wrong a lot. Again, they've been forcing that that framework, it's mask and vax or nothing else. There's yeah. no other possibility. And it's like, eh, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, taking this pro, prophylactics yeah. may have helped as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the forcing the children to be disconnected from each other and adults in order to quote unquote protect them. First off, there's plenty of debate about do you actually get protected or not? To me, it looks like a lot of not, but that's on top of the least at risk population ever. So to force these children to go through a, a psychologically damaging experience, it's a slow drip of damage, but it's damaging nonetheless. I, I, I don't use this term lightly, but I think it's a crime against humanity. I do as well. I mean, going back to early in our conversation, when I said those few years of Montessori school, I think had a, like, a compounding effect on my life throughout. Alternatively, this will for kids that, that are where my age at that point in time now, it's going to have a compounding effect moving forward, like decades out, which yeah. is, I mean, you're already seeing it psychologically. Like a few of the kids that I know that are like a bit older, like five, six, they have a, like a, like a, a mental crutch. Their mask is now a mental crutch. They yeah. need it um, because it gives them like a form of comfort. It's like and, a pacifier. Yeah. Yeah. Which is extremely fucked up. Yeah. It is. It, and I also worry about uh, the lesson we're teaching kids, the lesson of blind obedience. And I, and I don't think anything 
good comes from someone outsourcing their free will to anybody else. I think we obviously entertain what people say, consider that, but the idea of teaching kids day in, day out, this very physical lesson of be blindly obedient. It's the right thing to do. Uh, I worry about that. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Like we're supposed to like blindly agree. It's really dangerous. And then if you're not, you're all of a sudden all right. Why is that? Like, that's the thing that like, I, I by no means have ever thought I was like a right-leaning individual. Hey, I didn't see a Ukraine flag in your, in your profile. Are you a Putin stooge? Yeah, yeah. no, I just don't yeah, think like, like <laughs> I want you to denounce Russia right now. Justin. <laughs> Get him to do it. He's I not going to do it. I mean, I see that that's the issue also is like, it, like, w- like, why do you even need to have a stance? Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, like, like why all of a sudden does every organ, like, why do you have to like have a, opinion that falls under this narrative of how things have to work when you can just say, I actually don't know. I was having a conversation last night that there's like a series of individuals that like you can actually, what you can experience in your life is say, if I don't individually experience it, it actually doesn't exist. So one of the things says like, well, what do you think about the war in Ukraine? It's like, actually, I don't know what's going on. The truth is as a human being, if I'm very critical about my life, I actually don't know what's going on. I'm not there. I'm not, I don't physically see what's happening. I have this selective bias on the internet or by mainstream news of what's happening, but I actually don't know the actual experience because I wasn't there to feel it. I only know my own experience. It's an interesting thing to live by. Like, if you're like, that's the way you think about your life is whatever you actually experience is your reality and everything else is conjecture because it's someone else's ideas on yours. And how do you experience that? Yeah. And it's, it's hard to. Because the pull of the narratives that you see on social media and mainstream media are so strong. It's hard to just be like, no, I actually don't know. I wasn't there. I did not experience it. Like you said, so I I don't know. Yeah. Like what's going on in Russia, Ukraine? I actually don't know. It's like, oh my God, you're, how dare you say that? (laughs) How dare you say you don't know what's going on? It's a war crime. It's Uh all this. Just wait. When this episode gets posted, there's going to be a bunch of well actuallys that come in. Like, well, actually, you can know to a certain extent. Yeah, well, well actually, I mean, what what we can know is what we're told is going on. But I think framing it like that is empowering. Like, I know what the news tells me is going on in Russia, Ukraine, and that's a distinction from what's actually going on. But I think our our minds have such a need for certainty. You know, it's one of our six basic human needs. If your need for certainty is so pervasive that you become certain about things that may or may not be true, you're misleading yourself just so you can feel a temporary sense of safety that comes with feeling certain about something. But there's no correlation between truth and certainty necessarily. Uh, So we love to be certain about things. That may or may not be true just because it makes us feel better. This is why Bitcoin is incredible. You can run the numbers and be certain. Yeah. Get TX outset info. All right. My note is validating <laughs> that this many Bitcoin exist at this point in time at this block height. I know for certain as I ran the code. I audited the code and I cross-referenced it with Carr's node over there. And he's, he's getting the same thing. Um, I think Bitcoin is going to, like, again, it's a forcing function that, like, it's, I mean, safe 
wrote it in the Bitcoin standard. Like Bitcoin is the only objective truth that exists in modern society due to the fact that you can verify uh, all of this on the blockchain. Mm. Um, and there's very limited platform risk with Bitcoin. That's the other thing. Like some people ask, like, you know, we just went through this massive fundraise and I talked to a lot of people in that process. And some of them are the other side of venture capitalists that focus on buying tokens and all that stuff. And they're like, why did you choose Bitcoin over Ethereum or these other blockchains? And the thing I come back to is this concept of platform risk is that there's very little platform risk when building on Bitcoin because you know there won't be that many changes over a long time horizon. And the de facto case study of platform risk is like Zynga building on Facebook. Facebook changes one thing in their algorithm and then they lose a billion dollars of revenue overnight. I think that's a function that every one of these centralized blockchains will deal with at some point is that you have Ethereum that, you know, you know, yes, it's maybe deflationary, but you don't know what will change in the code at the whims of their centralized team because they're writing that code, right? It's not based upon consensus. That's where there's objective truth. Well, you, you had the uh, one of the co-founders of Consensus and the chair chairwoman of Consensus come out and say they're going to help the WEF create uh, blockchain ESG guidelines that that Ethereum will comply with. So you know, wow, they can uh, you can of course you can bank on them changing the protocol to be ESG. I mean, that's the whole. They're all companies. Like everything but Bitcoin is a company, right? It's like. That's the difference. Is like this thing is inherently different. E Ethereum's a company, pretty much. There, there is an Ethereum uh, foundation. I mean, it, yeah, the Ethereum Foundation launched the Ethereum ICO, so there was a company behind the ICO. Um, okay, and I think who's writing the code? Isn't it an organization that? Like it's not the same. Yeah, there is an open source community of developers. You can't give them that, but uh, a lot of the stuff that they're developing is. Uh, it starts from more centralized companies. Isn't it safe to say that if Vitalik wanted to bring up a new thing into Ethereum, it would probably happen? I mean, history has shown that yes, that yes, is the case. Of course. So, I mean, we, of course. We won't even have to project forward. You can just look back retroactively and say most things that he's brought to the fore have been added to the protocol. Yeah. Um, Forks have been established because of stolen funds and smart contracts? Yes. Right? That was a thing that happened at some point. And forks have not happened when certain individuals get smart contracts uh, that go awry, like Polkadot, Gavin Wood was one of the co-founders. Apparently him and Vitalik uh, don't really like each other. The Dow hacker got his coins taken away from him, but the, the person who, who hacked Polkadot or their coins got locked up, they didn't save Polkadot. Um, so you have that subjective... Uh, selective. Selective subject, subjectivity that, that gets into... The conversation over there in Ethereum land. Um, yeah, I, 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 I like Ethereum because it's a great distraction. Let's all the people who don't understand what's happening focus on that and virtue signal, and <laughs> let themselves feel good. And meanwhile, we can focus on the important things over here in Bitcoin. Mm. The truth, yeah. the objective truth. Yes. How does it, well, let's talk about Zion 2.0. What, what have you guys changed since we last recorded in my backyard? When was that, November? October? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. It was two months after we launched. So fundamentally, every single thing we've basically scrapped. So, you know, the history of Zion was that, you know, we, we built some things uh, forking off of Sphinx, um, particularly this concept of like one user, one node. 
And the idea is that there was a lightning node and then there was a Node.js wrapper, a relay around that node. And that node became the communication mechanism for communities. It was the data storage hub. It was like how everything interacted. And we quickly realized um, basically that this is a very unscalable model. Like, and, and I'll give context to why. And this is all public information. So when Zion launched, there were 15,500 nodes with channels on the public Bitcoin blockchain. January 30th, there were 20,000 20, 20, nodes on the Bitcoin blockchain. So that's a net change of 4,750 nodes. Zion accounted for 3,500 of the 4,700 nodes added to the Bitcoin Lightning Network for public nodes and public channels. So we were 75% of the global growth was as a result of Zion's infrastructure and our nodes through Voltage. That's a very unscalable model to have an individual have a node. It's also, it doesn't work at the numbers that we're dealing with. So there had to have been a, a new alternative built. So we just explored every possible situation of saying, we want to build a social product. How are we going to do this? And so it started off where we were going to actually build on Noster. That was the beginning concept of, hey, we're going to use this new relay architecture that involves Ellen Bits and, and Zion. And we're going to build this new app that can, because our focus is communities and conversations, right? So you can build a community like JP has this community, and then you have conversations within that thread. But then we quickly realized that like data storage would have been a, a very challenging thing with Noster. So we had to move away and we were basically approached by um, Daniel. We had a meeting with him uh, here in Austin and he showed us, he's like, Hey, there's this thing that we're building at ION. It's a you know, a DID and an identity hub, data storage with IPFS. Uh, by the way, you can use, because it's all written in Go, we can use the LN Bits uh, architecture we were going to use, which is this account system. And you can put it all together and build your social network on top of this open standard. And they were so supportive. They worked with us. I mean, they were we were on weekly calls. They're helping us write code. We're writing code. So we went down the route to do everything on DIDs, uh, ION, uh, data storage of identity hubs on IPFS. So we're used, like with the protocol labs team and then everything, all the payments running through lightning, um, and, and an LN bits, um, instance that we're using. So everything has changed. Like the UI UX is completely different. Like we've scrapped all the, the thing we haven't scrapped is the learnings of like managing 3,500 nodes and 4,000 channels of liquidity inside the Lightning Network, very, very challenging. We're able to use all of our hub infrastructure into the new V2, but April 4th will be the launch of Zion V2. And the on it, the thing is you could just go download the app, create a DID and a wallet within three clicks. And then if you want to be a member of the community and join JP's community, there'll be a small fee uh, to join that community. Hell yeah. And so how does IPFS work into all this? Because you guys are making that design decision. I know Impervious is leveraging IPFS too, and I have not jumped into IPFS in quite some time. That is a good question that I think we should bring Daniel in to explain, because I think the that protocol for that specific data storage piece will be released at the conference. So okay. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but the idea... The general idea and how I understand it, again, I'm not an engineer, um, I'm, is that there's a DID and then there's an identity hub. The identity hub is essentially like for a creator, the place all their information is stored. And that instance and all the specific files within the DID structure, the naming of those files can be stored on IPFS mm -hmm. instead of on a centralized server. And then the instance can be moved to different places, right? So for example, this is how Daniel explained to us the other day. If Zion decides that 
they long, don't longer want to do business with JP. All he does is change the location of the data storage. He loses nothing because his DID, everything is tied to that DID. It's not tied to a, a DNS. It's not tied to a specific IP address that can be just turned off. It's tied to this global address that's interoperable across. Which uses like cryptography and Merkle trees to store all that data. I'm yeah, assuming. I yeah. think so. I think so. I, I'm I'm truly not technical enough to describe it. Um, but again, all this is, our relay is now, it's, it's still 100% open source. So you can go to, you know, our GitHub and, and look at all these things. Hell yeah. So, I mean, I'm trying to think of what we can, because we're recording this episode on March 21st, yep. 2022. You launch on April 4th. Two weeks from today. You guys got big plans at, uh, at the conference. Yeah, this guy's going to be a... Uh... We're, we're going to have fun. Uh, you know, we, what we launched version two, what? Two days, maybe, two days before, two, two days, days before, before the, the conference. conference. Um, so we'll be in big celebration mode promotion and, uh, yeah. And I'm excited. I get to MC, uh, let's see the first half of the second day of the conference. Yes, sir. We'll be connecting with amazing change makers at the conference and, also sharing with the world what we're doing at Zion, building the digital infrastructure of freedom and sovereignty for people who want that. I think, do people want it? I guess that's a good question. Well, that's, so I, I think so. And I think people are waking up to that. Obviously, a, a lot of people know they they want it. But I think more and more are waking up because we're feeling the pain. If we built Zion three years ago, like, who I wouldn't even want it three years ago. The pain wasn't great enough. The need for it wasn't great enough, but especially the past couple of years, we've seen the pain. I mean, everything from censorship to manipulative algorithms, like, you know, the social network comes out and we learn like, well, these algorithms are psychologically damaging to people. So we know we need to do better. We hear of, of the privacy breaches all the time. And, and I think people are tired of being the product. Oh, the, the privacy breaches are rampant right now. It's, it's, last week, right? HubSpot got hacked and almost every Bitcoin company uses HubSpot and we all got emails. Yeah. All your data has been breached, right? Like I want to prevent that stuff. Like I don't want to even have to ever send that email. That's another reason why we're using DIDs is that we don't have, like we don't have that type of information on any Zion server. We never wanted to, by the way. That was why like the, Early architecture also said, you run your own node. If you can run your own relay, we can let you use our infrastructure if you want to rent it. But the private keys are held on the device and all the information is relayed from the node to another node. Zion has no access to messages or content or any of that stuff. And this is actually like the reason we're also going to this infrastructure is it's it's even more decentralized yeah. than what we were. We were like, we were getting there. We were using like all these things to say, okay, the Lightning Network is decentralized. Voltage does the hosting. It's one far removed. This allows us to be even more decentralized. And you could run your own relay if you choose so. Like you own your identity for the first time and Lightning does all the payments. Hell yeah. So as a creator, what's it been like testing out Zion 2.0? You know, uh, I haven't test driven 2.0 yet. I've seen screen flows and everything. Uh, uh, I'm excited to because well, I'm so proud of what we've built already with Zion. Anytime I post on Zion, 
in, in my uh, creator community, I share things in there every day that I cannot share on other social media platforms because I would certainly get banned. But when I have a piece of meaningful information that I, I want to share with my community, it's such a weird sensation to go on and post it. Here's why it's kind of like if you've ever been to Australia or Europe, you get in a rental car, you're driving on the left side of the road. It's, it, it feels so weird. It feels like walking somewhere without pants on. It's just like, wow, this is a weird sensation. I get that on Zion because, and I don't like to admit it, but I've been so conditioned by Instagram, YouTube to self-censor and not put anything on there that, you know, if it appeals to me, I, I can't necessarily just share it. So it's a beautiful pattern to be breaking with Zion. So I'm so proud of what we've developed, but also with version two, aside from it, it giving people more of a decentral, even more of a decentralized experience, it's more scalable so we can serve more people. But the interface of it, it's more connective, more community oriented, and it's becoming, I mean, we're really just about there where my mother could use Zion without a problem. Yeah. Justin was showing me uh, last week a demo on his phone. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. The design yeah. is, is very straightforward. It feels like any other app. It doesn't feel like clunky. Yeah, like a lot of uh, Bitcoin apps tend to. So yeah, our our focus is that we want to build a consumer app, and you know, by the you know, and we want it to just be a regular thing. But none of the things we're building is regular, right? Like we're not like I could have made so many shortcuts of like, okay, let's centralize this, let's use email, yes, let's use passwords. Okay, then you have to store emails and passwords. You have to. We made all these decisions on how our messages fetched in Zion V2. And one of the things like I'll show you, I'll give, send you this slide if you want to put it up on a screen while this podcast is going on. But it's like how data is fetched between a hub and an individual client. So the client is the application is very different than a centralized server, right? And so, and instead of using a specific, you use a DID resolver to fetch the message. And there's all these, there's actually, we have... We have diagrams in the GitHub that show how everything works. So I think those elements also show like the ethos of who we are. There were so many elements that we could have just said, hey, let's centralize this thing. Let's do these things to make it easier. But we don't want to. Like we're looking for the alternative because we're not trying to build the same thing. We could have built locals. We could have built everything on a central, but we chose not to. We're choosing to build this on Bitcoin. And I think that's the ethos of what we want to do. And when I look at even this book, the book, 100% of the proceeds of this book goes to supporting building Zion. It's not going to my pocket. It's not going to JP's individual pocket. We don't collect a single thing from the company right now. It's going to build sovereignty infrastructure for the internet. Like that's our mission every single day. So it's like supporting our general mission of what we want to do in the world. And we're building it 100% on Bitcoin. If your mission's successful, gentlemen, what do you think the world looks like? Ooh, this is good. Well, like, like you mentioned you feel free being able to post there. Like, What does that do at scale? So the, uh, speaking of the question in a, a way, but the first thing that comes to my mind, if the mission is successful, is in in... 10 years, you know, when my son's a little bit older, 
I, I will have to explain to him what censorship was. <laughs> I, I want him to not have any idea. I don't want to have to explain to my son what freedom was, what free speech was. I, the mission is to make it so I've got to explain to my son what censorship was. And, and for me, that's the big, like emotional provoking aspect of the mission and how I know it'll be successful, but you know, it, it a little bit more of a, uh, I guess maybe a micro level. I think inherently humans are great. You, you look at whatever the population is of the U S 300 million, give or take, most of the, most of us are good people. Like the of only a very small percentage of the population is in prison because they're, you know, they've got bad behavior. So humans are great. And, and we need to share our greatness, our magnificent beauty through expression. And a big way that we can share expression obviously is online, you know, in person, nothing will ever take the place of that, but there's online expression. So for me, people being able to connect in a civil way, uncensored, a free sovereign way. So humans can share their miraculousness. That's what we want. We want humans to be able to exchange connectivity, whether that's a piece of information, creativity, a payment, because I think it's our natural state. I agree. Yeah. I mean, that's been a big theme on this show last couple of months is we find ourselves in the middle of a great battle between Malthusians and Prometheans, Malthusians think we're bad, uh, a drag on the world. There's too many of us and we, we should limit the amount of humans they are, there are on the planet. And the Prometheans, the Malthusians view the world as zero to negative sum. Or Prometheans who believe that we're beautiful, crazy, innovative, creative Creatures that can actually build a world that is positive sum for all of us. We're, we're not the, the scourge that many think we are. Yeah, I, I think if we're acting like a scourge or you see someone who, oh, they're a, a bad person, they're hurting other people, it's because they're disconnected from their natural state. I think when we're connected to our natural state, we contribute to the betterment of people around us. We contribute to our own betterment and we're an expansive state. Uh, mentioned earlier the poet Mark Nepo who said all violence is an expression of unexpressed creativity. Mm. So that means, you know, when people are not in their natural state, they're more prone to violence. But when we're in our natural state, freedom, connection being a couple aspects of that, then we're good. And, and if we're acting bad, it's because we're not respecting the natural law of being a human, yeah. in my opinion. I think to add like what, you know, I, I echo JP's point a lot about what makes us successful, but I think we want to see like a change in culture around these potential technical patterns to be implemented across applications in the world. I think like if we can accept the idea in culture that applications can be built in this way, they can accept this open standard and then all of us can start going into this direction and we don't have to have ownership of data and ownership of information and manipulation through advertising. And there's a new potential business model. If we can incept that concept over culture and say, we should build stuff this way, 
I think it's a win, right? Like even if Zion isn't successful for whatever reason, we know as, as humans that like we did our very best to just, maybe there's an engineer out there that's now thinking about this idea in a new way. It's like, wow, I can build an app this way. And I can like the future of app stores can now move into this open source, whatever you want to call it, web three. Like that's the hope. They're not web stores at the end. Yeah. There's like applications you can download. It is web three. Yeah. I mean, it's true web three. Like this is stuff Daniel and I talk about all the time is like, I think the, 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 the token world of web three is a hope, but it's not an interoperable open standard that's being accepted by the biggest companies in the world. Like, When I started this company, I was like, I was very like against big organizations of like them accepting these open standards. But I also realized like at some point, if you have the biggest companies in the world also using those similar patterns, we have a chance to actually do it. Like when I found out that Block is building TBDEX in this way, they're building it with this concept and they want to have proof of concepts in this world. I was like, that is a really good indicator that I should probably follow that pattern and build a company following that pattern because it's an open standard that they're using. Instead of me building this like anarchy, like thing in my basement with five other people, like that's not what's going to get implemented across the world. Like I'm also someone that I want to affect billions of people. I don't want to just like build my thing for my 500 friends. That's just not what I want to do. I have bigger ambitions to help the world. Whew. Got to think big. Go big, swing big. But going back to your point too about getting back to our natural state, of connection with ourselves and others. Like that's what the beauty of what Bitcoin does too. That gets us back to the natural state of money where it's like a free market good that can't be controlled by anybody. The fiat system allows you to print this stuff ex nihilo. Fucking crazy. A very small few individuals be like, we're going to print this money. We're going to go do this war. There's nothing you can do about it. Like Bitcoin arguably uh, increases the barrier for conflict because you're more incentivized to just cooperate because yep. it's like if you don't cooperate like you're, you're just not going to get uh, economic value out of it where yep. in the fiat system it's like print the money i don't care if we don't cooperate i'm just going to print the money anyway and go do what i want yeah and yeah and i think like adding to it we, we also want with zion v2 is we want to make money very liquid like we want to make it like water and I think that's the cool thing about the new UI UX is that you'll be able to, to basically send value to anyone in the network in a very fluid way. And you'll see some interesting things with hand gestures around content where you can make interactions like not just a cheap like, but it's actual money. Like we, we won't have likes. We will just have money moving from individuals. It will be Bitcoin. But that's the concept that makes Lightning really exciting is that you can move fractions of pennies instantly across the world with instant settlement inside of a social experience. I think that's the other element that like with this new system, we can do that a lot faster, a lot easier. And that's like, those are the enhancements of what make a great application is like, and it's only done through Bitcoin and Lightning. This could not have been done across any other protocol. Yeah. I mean, to think, I mean, we can't even fathom the the monetization models that come forth from this. Yeah. We don't even know because we haven't had experiences of it yet. Yeah. Like when you talk about, uh, we had a 1031 tribe event here and one of the founders was talking about unique monetization models that Bitcoin enables. And I'm not going to say them on air because I don't want to blow up the spot, but uh, it's a, he was saying stuff. I was like, holy shit, I've never even thought of it that way. And it's like, there's like, that's just like a, a step 
further into like the uncharted territory that we're walking into. Like just imagine again, 10 years from now, there's going to be like monetization models that were like, if we knew them right now, we'd be like, holy shit. Yeah. But like like, my mission for JP, and this is something that's in my mind as, as, as building this product is that I'm by the end of the year, I want people to be able to watch a JP Sears video inside of Zion data stored on IPFS. And when he's making jokes that are making you legitimately laugh because he does all these like really funny moments that people end up putting comments on. You can make an interaction on your device and send him sats instantly while you're watching the video in stream. Like that's the thing I want to build for him. And we're, we're almost there and actually getting that product to life. That's the kind of stuff to me is really interesting because there's a human, like when you watch a JP Sears video, there are moments within that three to five minute video that you have this human interaction where endorphins are running through your system. And we want to emulate that through money for the value exchange from your brain to go to him immediately through a monetary exchange. That's what I want to create with this system. I love that. And one of my favorite experiences on Zion 1.0 that we've been using is me being able to pay my followers, the members of the community, and also seeing them pay each other. So it's basically, it, it incentivizes crowdsourcing contribution to the community. So when someone posts what whatever it is, a funny meme or something informative, when they contribute value to the community, I go on there and I give them a tip. And it feels so rewarding to be able to do that and see, and, you know, Joe might see Susie post something. Joe likes what Susie posts. So he gives her a tip. So I love, I love how the, you know, this dimension of the monetization model, it incentivizes community growth and contribution. Quality. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we've seen the proxy, right? Like Zion in the last seven months since launch has processed 100, not processed because we don't process, but we know through forwards of our routing nodes, 120,000 transactions between fans, fans. We don't know where they actually went, but 120,000 transactions moved through the system. And that's not, not a lot of people are using this product yet. It's a very new product. So we know that people enjoy that experience. It's something that they're using on a daily basis inside the application. So we have those indicators of like a new type of um, experience. And I, I'm calling it like the, the next layer of the creator economy. Cause mm-hmm. what we established on the internet a few years ago was like a regular person can go put videos out on the internet and get paid for them. Now, what about their fans? Mm-hmm. What about the followers of that individual being paid for being a professional consumer of content? For, for posting that great meme as a follow-up to a video or as clipping things out and getting paid for, right? Like this is all the interesting thing that Lightning can create. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, like seeing, seeing it on the podcasting 2.0 apps where I can boost individual followers, like Fountain Apps adding that, Sphinx has had it, Zion's had it. It's just really cool seeing this explosion of monetization possibilities happen and it's so early that's the thing that's crazy oh. that's where like sometimes i get impatient uh with podcasting 2.0 stuff it's like ah, it's like a yeah model works pretty well and it's making a lot of money podcasting 2.0 is a pittance compared to it but it's like it's not a failure podcasting 2.0 it's just like not enough people are using it yet yeah and I, like one of the things that i like because this is kind of a bitcoin podcast is like the, and i told you this the first time is like the, this, this competition in Bitcoin is the stupidest thing that I've ever heard of, of like lightning companies trying to compete with each other. And they're like, no, we're not doing like, 
guys, nobody's using this shit yet. Like why, there's no competition. Like everyone needs to come together as a mind. Everyone needs to come together and have a conversation. Say, what are we going to build to change the world in this open new standard instead of arguing with each other? Like it's, this is the absurdity. Like I made a, I made a Twitter post of like, I think, and it was truly from my heart because I thought it'd be a good idea. It's like Jack should get together some of the CEOs of the biggest lightning companies and try to put together a strategy of what should we all do together? Or lightning labs should do the same. And Twitter railed me like, no, fuck you. My node, my this, my that. It's like, Whoa, bro. That like, that wasn't my intention. My intention is that like, yes, you're, you have a node, but that's not what's going to, your node is not going to change the world. Like we have to build solutions for the world. That's going to change the world. Build utility. Yes. That's uh, something I was mentioning on Friday at the Bitcoin takeover event that we had. Like, yeah, there's this, there's this weird, there's been a weird like mentality in Bitcoin is like, don't invest in Bitcoin companies. Just hold your Bitcoin. It's going to go up in price. But it's like, there's this reinforcing feedback loop. If you add utility to Bitcoin and make it easier for people to use Bitcoin and give them more services, they'll want it more. And so it'll drive value to us. Like there's this weird chicken and egg problem in the Bitcoin world. Or there has been for some time where it's like, what do we do? Do we just hold the Bitcoin or can we invest in companies? Like what, what are you going to get yelled at yeah. for? It's like, yeah. number one, don't care what anybody else thinks. As long as these assurances of the protocol are protected, like you should be able to do whatever the hell you want. Uh, and then number two, to your point, I mean, Jameson Lawford, a piece about this called a co-opetition. Like, yes, you can compete, but you can also cooperate too. hundred like percent. Yeah. I, th- I think there should be times where we get together as a group and say like, what is our collective mission? Like, I think Ethereum has done that very well. I, I think, think the Bitcoin the, takeover event, we had a, we had a panel, lightning panel, you missed it, but it, we had uh, Lisa Nygut, uh, Rockstar Dev from Strike and Miles Suter from Cash App working on LDK, L- LND, or backwards. Lisa's working on C-Lightning. C-Lightning. Uh, Rockstar is building on LND and then Miles is with Blocks who, who Spiral created LDK and Cash App's leveraging that. But like, they had an, I think they had an epiphanal moment on stage together. Like, all right, that's probably makes sense to focus on uh, on this part of the Lightning, particularly invoice and like Bit21. Like if you scan a QR code, uh, it's a lightning invoice and an on-chain address at the same time. And you have like fallback uh, logic that that is not cohesive across the different implementations. And I think there may have been progress made on stage here. People like, all right, we are competing, but uh, for the sake of the users who are using the different implementations, like we should make it interoperable. 100% should be interoperable. All this stuff should be. That's the whole point is like, why are we building on Lightning is like an open interoperable network. Yes, our implementation is LND, but it's an interoperable network, right? And it's, it's like the innovation. It's, it's, the innovation is all about the teams. That's what I also hope is that if you're a smart, if you really want to build something smart and innovative, like we'd love to have you. Like we're trying to triple our team over the next 12 months. We just, we're announcing at this time of this podcast getting released, like we'll announce our fundraise and like how much money we raised from who we raised it from. Like we want to deploy a lot of capital, to bring people to build this infrastructure of freedom and sovereignty for the world. You guys are about to have a banger of a few weeks here. Yeah. I mean, this it, conference. it's going to be like the next two weeks for us is, is huge. And I think this announcement the technical announcement and the fundraise to me is remarkable. Like what if, what kind of value we've been able to create in the Bitcoin space in a short seven months, it, the number's remarkable for me. Even as a founder that sold a business before, I'm like, holy shit, dude, we pulled that off. That's, yeah. 
And who's backing us, I think is very interesting. Like when we make the announcement, it's very interesting who those companies are. We're going to post this before that announcement, right? So we'll spoil <laughs> can we, it. Can we, can we post it on April 4th? Uh, what's, yeah, I don't see why not. What two is weeks. that? Monday. Monday. Two yeah. weeks from today. That depends what's going on. Cool. We should be able to. This is like, a, I usually record these live, but I have been like, now that we're in the studio, studio set, I think, um, weighing the, uh, weighing like the option, like, is it, is it worth just doing it all live? Like, should we do recorded stuff like this? I don't think I have anything scheduled for April 4th right now. So thank you. Doing business on air. This is what we're, uh, known for at TFTCJP. <laughs> It's one of our, it's one of our, uh, <laughs> one of our, uh, calling cards. This we is do, how the do, big do. decisions are made and people get to witness it. Yes. Um, this is the TFTC difference. Mm. Gentlemen, this was a pleasure. A meandering conversation. Uh, I think, I think, uh, two are force for good in the world, fucking bringing objective truth and trying to, to make it so that we don't get, thrown into the digital panopticon it's a uh, very important work and more people need to be aware of it so uh i'm happy we're able to have this discussion today thank you for your support marty you've been so supportive i think you were at our book you were at our launch the first day uh you've been a very supportive friend I've, i love you very much thank you so much for supporting us seriously it means a lot yeah, no, i mean really, really appreciate you brother i appreciate you guys too it's very easy uh, good people building good things so again like and like i said like people i get yelled at sometimes for like oh why are you like having the zion guys on it's like and these bitcoiners people from outside of bitcoin coming in and pushing the design space like that's all i care about yeah. pushing bitcoin it's like there's been very myopic views of how this needs to happen and like i said we can't even fathom what's going to happen in the future and i think you guys are really putting a flag down saying like, Hey, maybe we can take it here. And it's like, all right, yeah, let's go explore this. And also those people, I think at some point that were kind of bitching about the Sphinx thing, they literally, and they have no excuses to complain about us in this next phase. Like, there's nothing for them to say at this point. Like at the end of the day, we have 47,000 people on a wait list to create a lightning wallet and exchange information in a decentralized way using Bitcoin. That's Zion. We brought 47,000 plus 3,000, 50,000 new people to use Lightning that weren't potentially using it before. That's a good thing for Bitcoin. Yeah. Going to push the limits, that's for sure. <laughs> let's, see, let's see if the Lightning Network can hold up to it. I think it can. I think it can. Yeah. Um, all right. What, what, what should we tell the freaks before we get out of here? Um, oh, can, uh, how to get the forward of the book for free oh jp's doing yeah. something really cool for everybody jp well to... uh, collective offering but yeah we decided we we just want to give the forward of the book away which uh, i wrote and if you look at the forward you might say yeah i want to get the full book or maybe get it right away but if you want to download the forward for free it is unapologeticfreedombook.com unapologeticfreedombook.com a little bit long that's a long domain name yeah yes. but if we you tried just, to make yeah, it longer but <laughs> but if you go to zion.fyi slash book that's a new uh domain we're going to establish also our new website will be zion.fyi and the book link will be at the bottom but yeah we want to give away the forward for free i think to see like hey what are they going to talk about in this thing um the uh, 
I would get the book. The audio book is really cool because it's JP and I doing the audio book together. So it's parts of me reading it. It's part of him reading the quotes. Uh, he reads the subheadings. Like it's a very dynamic audiobook, and it's only two hours and 15 minutes. So it'd be very supportive of like, go to zion.fyi to actually join Zion. And then please just get a copy of this book and just, you know, it's supporting Bitcoin and freedom. Yeah. It, it, we just want people to see the message of the book. That's why we're charging is the smallest amount that Amazon will allow us. 10 we just, bucks. We just want to get the book out there because it's a message that, uh, people outside of the Bitcoin world don't know about where we're at, how we got here, but more importantly, what's the path forward so that we can have a beautiful, free, sovereign world for our future, but more importantly, our children and our grandchildren. That's really what we're here for, freaks. My son, my child that's coming, and hopefully more after that will not live in the panopticon. I will not allow it. Fuck that. Fuck that. Let's go. Let's go build the free world unapologetically. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Seriously, fuck the haters. Peace and love, freaks. Take care.